0: chapter sixteen of the whispering man by henry kitchell webster this LibriVox recording is in the public domain chapter sixteen Geoffrey explains mr stancliffe was not actually dead when the doctor summoned by richards in such hot haste arrived there is probably no hope in the world that gentleman had said but there's no doubt of our duty to attempt to revive him so for the next half hour he did everything that skill and energy could suggest and kept jeffrey and me pretty busy following out his instructions finally however he turned away that's all i can do gentlemen he said except to notify the coroner your testimony will doubtless be wanted at the inquest while this had been going on richards was busily occupied in a careful systematic search through the dead man's effects it was all very well for jeffrey to proclaim carleton stancliffe as the murderer of dr marshall but it would be a little better to have some sort of corroborative evidence to back it up with the wardrobe and the bureau drawers were empty but a great many articles were lying about the room A big trunk was half-packed with others, and an empty suitcase yawned to receive its share. A little hanging shelf full of books was the only thing in the room that gave it an air of habitation. Richards finished his investigations at the trunk just about the time the doctor went away. "'I don't find anything here, Mr. Jeffrey," that bears out your theory,' he said. "'No,' my friend said coolly. "'I didn't think you would.' he himself was standing with his hands in his pockets gazing at the little row of well-worn books on the shelf i suppose said richards half in sarcasm but half in uneasy earnest i suppose you know where everything important in this room is without looking yes my friend said quietly i do one of them unless i am greatly mistaken is in one of the dead man's trousers pockets He did not turn his head as he spoke, but remained in his former position, running his eye along the titles of the volumes that comprised Mr. Stancliffe's little library. Richards eyed him doubtfully, half inclined to think my friend was making game of him. Then he thought better of it, went over to the bed, and bent down over the body that lay there. Is this what you mean? I heard him ask. Something wrapped up in oiled silk? That's it, said Geoffrey. The lieutenant turned around to the light and unwrapped the little package. It was a very small, hypodermic syringe with a broken needle in it. Smell of it, commanded Geoffrey, still without turning around. The lieutenant sniffed obediently. Hmm, tobacco, he said. Nicotine, Geoffrey corrected pure nicotine, and that little syringe in your hand is the instrument with which he committed the murder. Well, said Richards with a sigh, I don't know how you do it. Is there anything else you can direct me to? Why, said Geoffrey, besides those wigs and makeup boxes on the bureau, I think the only other thing of importance is this. And he put out his hand and drew a book from the shelf. It was bound in well-worn black leather and had a half-obliterated monogram on the back. J. R. M. Look here, Drew, he said. This ought to take us pretty close to the Grosvenor building tragedy. He opened it and began turning the pages backward. The last ones were all blank. What's the book? I asked. Dr. Marshall's case book said he and the last entry he made ought to prove interesting the next moment he found it the page was only about one-third filled with dr marshall's fine upright precise handwriting stancliffe carlton it read his third visit this week shows more clearly than before the symptoms of degenerative recurrent hypomania if the examination bears this out i shall take steps to have him put under restraint still perfectly sane in the legal sense but distinctly dangerous at large well said i thoughtfully he was right up to the last wasn't he geoffrey shivered no said he it was his one great mistake he ought to have acted sooner and then he repeated half under his breath third visit this week he closed the book and handed it to the lieutenant i think said he that my friend and i have had about enough if we can't do anything more for you we'll be off i doubt if there's anything else to find jeffrey emptied his glass and took a long pull at my pipe the pipe he had set about cleaning so few hours before the pipe that had so unexpectedly provided him with the clue to our mystery. I had already made him a present of it. Well, said he, it's four o'clock in the morning. Do you want to go to bed like an only moderately disreputable citizen, or shall we make a night of it, thrashing out the whole tale? You know what I want well enough, said I when you took the driver's seat in the automobile coming home and brought me all the way up here without a word of explanation i began to wonder whether you ever meant to talk or not whether you weren't going to leave me to wallow in my ignorance and stupidity to my dying day i had to get my story in order before i could tell it to you said he i knew there would be no use showing you my kite until i had tied a tale of reasonable inferences on behind it really i believe he had postponed telling his story until now for the purpose of providing us with a reasonable excuse for not going to bed when we did get home i may as well preface the narrative with which geoffrey was about to favour me with the remark that in one particular he had made a mistake a further search of stancliffe's effects revealed one more article of capital importance a remarkable diary in the handwriting of the murderer himself a diary which was afterwards found to contain a practically complete account of the murder of dr marshall and of the attempt upon the life of gwendolen but the document contained nothing hardly a single detail which was not anticipated by jeffrey in the story he told me this morning you remember jeffrey began the evening we dined together and you found jack marshall waiting for you when we came back here i left you immediately for i don't know him well and felt sure he wouldn't want to speak to me the desk clerk stopped me before I could get into the elevator, and told me there was a gentleman waiting in the reception room to see me. It was Carlton Stancliffe, and I took him straight up to my quarters. I'd never seen him before, not off the stage, that is, for the arrangement for the series of sketches and articles we were to do together had been completed through the magazine it was a business call and i was expecting it i no more imagined a connection between him and dr marshall than between him and the shah of persia but he had a newspaper with him and began to talk about the doctor told me how he had been there that morning told me what was not in the paper that it was supposed to be a case of murder he also added that he was to go up to the office that evening to attempt to identify pomeroy "'Well, you may believe me or not, but it's true just the same, "'that before he got halfway through talking about the case, "'I knew he was the murderer just as well as I know it now. "'I can't tell you how I knew. "'I just saw the facts sticking out all over him, "'and I tell you it gave me a mighty queer feeling. "'After he had gone, I did my best to throw it off. "'I told myself that it was a judgment on me "'for the mad things I had been saying to you at dinner.' but for all that the feeling kept growing stronger and stronger and finally i went out and followed you up to the marshal's house i didn't reach there until after you and jack had left but mrs marshall saw me she is a remarkable woman i hadn't intended saying a word to her but before i knew it she had my whole belief out of me of course she was incredulous she knew nothing whatever about mr stancliffe that would furnish any sort of conceivable motive for such a crime before we got through talking however the firmness of my conviction had had an effect upon her on the other hand her incredulity together with her disclaimer of any personal acquaintance with stancliffe either on her part or the doctor's had an effect upon me i saw how utterly foolish anything i might say must sound especially to you after the talk we had had that very evening that perception didn't in the least affect my certainty that i was right after all so i decided on a course of action i would say nothing more to any one of this idea of mine i pledged mrs marshall to secrecy but i would go to work all by myself to find out what motive stancliffe could possibly have had for the murder and how he could possibly have committed it i got my first hint from you yourself when you came home that night with the full account of your evening's adventures you spoke then of the man hyde whom dr marshall had ruined long ago and my mind jumped at once at a possible identity between him and mr Stancliffe. well said i i wish you had been in my shoes from the first we should have got to the end of our mystery a good deal quicker i had a hint at that identity myself but never perceived it for when i was talking to stancliffe about hyde and how madeline regarded him he started and knocked a siphon off the table and two or three times when we were together he made the slip of talking like a doctor about hypnotism and other things then too the cool scientific way he set about reviving miss carr when she fainted up in dr marshall's office might have suggested a previous medical experience only i appear to have been impervious to suggestion right along it was all natural enough said jeffrey an actress the most inconspicuous person in a community just by reason of his semi-public character you never think of asking questions about him of wondering what his real name is or where he lived ten years ago or what sort of moral character he has he's the one sort of person in society who never has to account for himself you think because you've seen him half a dozen times on the stage that you know all about him but you see i approached the case backward i knew knew for i can't express that certainty strongly enough that he was the actual murderer with that knowledge i ought to have been able to build up a column of evidence that would support it i fully expected that the evidence brought out at the inquest would prove to be valuable to me and there i was sadly disappointed it was made pretty clear i observed that a doctor must have done it that should have strengthened your conviction that hyde and stancliffe were the same man yes that was well enough so far as it went but it wasn't what i hoped for i came away from that inquest in an execrable temper because i was as much at a loss as ever as to how stancliffe could have done it i made the same mistake that everybody else did namely of assuming that because a whole series of patients four i think were summoned in the regular way into the office had their interview and went away satisfied that dr marshall himself must have been the person who talked to them must have been alive and well after stancliffe had gone out i hoped to find a way in which he could have gone back from the corridor at some subsequent time before twelve thirty and i wasn't able to find it just before you came in that evening i had received a note from mrs marshall which you chanced upon a little later and which i fancy had the effect of directing your suspicions against both of us i had been waiting for him to come to that and was feeling rather silly in anticipation of it she wrote to me jeffrey went on solely out of regard for your feelings she pointed out to me that it must necessarily be distressing to you to become aware that there was a confidential relation between herself and me in the case from which you were excluded and she suggested that unless i wanted to take you completely into my confidence as i had herself i should take care not to let you know that any such confidence existed i meant when you came in that night to tell you the whole story but you were off on another tack altogether even hinting suspicion against mrs marshall herself so i closed up i owe you an apology for that i certainly owe you one said i so if you don't mind we'll let them cancel each other but go on with your story i want the rest of it well said he i had no trouble in identifying stancliffe as james hyde beyond all possible doubt he posed for me the morning after the inquest and i drew a sketch of him just as he was then after he had gone i went over it and made it about fifteen years younger just on the chance i drew in the sort of moustache that everybody wore in those days and took the thing up to mrs marshall it only needed one look at her face when she saw it to settle all question of the identity she told me then enough about him and about the trouble he had got into to enable me to start an investigation of my own she was only a curl of fifteen when it happened and her version of the story couldn't be expected to be very complete hyde wasn't at all the wronged innocent that she thought him he was a very brilliant man and a very fascinating man that you will find it easy to believe but he was almost utterly devoid of moral scruples the thing that caused dr marshall to drive him out of his profession and out of the city was practically blackmail he had used knowledge that came to him professionally to terrorize a woman all the money she paid him which was nearly all she had was for alleged medical services but it was blackmail just the same the best thing about the man was perhaps his inability to see that there was anything wrong in what he had done he simply hadn't any morals that was all i succeeded in tracing him as far as australia and then i managed to trace Carlton stancliffe back from the same place it was there that he drifted on the stage and that was probably the profession that he should have followed from the first there are very few men who enter that profession as late in life as he did who rise so quickly to eminence well said i a little resentfully when you knew all that you certainly had something to tell me any amount of fact and inference to justify your suspicion and yet without a word you let me go blindly on confiding in him employing him even in the detection of the criminal geoffrey laughed i was rather taken aback when i found that you had done that he admitted but on second thought it occurred to me that it was the best thing that could have happened the man would never be so completely off his guard so completely unsuspicious that he himself was suspected as when he was serving you in that very employment and keeping you in the dark as to what he really was simply made it possible for you to act naturally the part that you would have been compelled to play had you known the truth During all those days while he kept you entertained with the evidence he was piling up against Miss Carr, I was racking my brains and pretty nearly wrecked them in an attempt to work out a sane and plausible theory of the murder. I never got it until you made that remark about the tobacco. That's what I've been waiting for all the evening, I cried. How in the world did my remark about the smell of tobacco give you the clue? He stared at me, evidently incredulous that I could be so stupid. Why, he said, that's really in your department. It's simply a case of fact and inference. You said that Gwendolyn Carr had remarked that the smell of tobacco in that office, more than the sight of the room itself, was what brought the terrible scene back to her well of course the odor wasn't that of tobacco or was rather of a highly concentrated form of it it was the smell of pure nicotine the poison which the murderer used didn't you see dr armstrong's smell of that broken needle when the coroner handed it to him at the inquest that's the only means he had of identifying the poison obviously then if Gwendolyn carr noticed that odour when she went in for her consultation with the doctor it must follow that the murder had already been committed and the man she talked to must have been somebody impersonating him he could of course be no one else but the murderer i see said i but answer me another question how did you know tonight that that syringe was to be found in mr stancliffe's trousers pocket think a minute said jeffrey what was the whole purpose of this second crime that stancliffe was trying to commit out at flatbush it was to prevent Gwendolyn carr from revealing the clue she unconsciously possessed that would have put us on his track that in the first place and in the second place to saddle an absolutely convincing proof of guilt upon her how could he do it better than by secreting the instrument with which the murder was committed among her effects but he couldn't do that safely until after she was dead he probably carried it with him all the time anyway he could hardly have had a safer hiding place for it than upon his own person there now i fancy you know as much as i do you can reconstruct the rest of the story to suit yourself no i said regretfully i am afraid reconstruction is not my forte fill your pipe again and sit back in that chair and tell me stancliffe's story End of chapter sixteen